and we're in the 12th chapter of Nehemiah tonight. I know we pray, but let's just bow our hearts one more time before the Lord. Lord, opening this book that we bring to church with us, as we open the Bible, and as your Spirit speaks to us through the words that the Holy Spirit has given through and to Nehemiah, we want to be tender-hearted towards you. We want to know that you have spoken to us and we believe that your word is true and there are principles that are in it and you desire to say things to us and apply them to our own hearts and lives. So we want to tell you verbally as a group that we are open and we ask you to speak and we ask you to poke deep into our lives and touch areas that need to be changed or things that need to be rearranged. And give us tender hearts toward you, loving, responsive ones that would say yes as your Spirit speaks. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Not last week, but the week before, I was back in North Carolina at a place called The Cove. It's called the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove. And I go every year in October, and I'm going to go again this October for a few days, and we do teaching sessions on different books of the Bible or topics. And I've done that for the last 15 years or so. But I was asked this time to go under different circumstances to teach, but the group was different. I was teaching a group of a few hundred what they call first responders when there's a tragedy like a hurricane or an earthquake or a terrorist attack. They have trained a group of people from all over the country. Some are firefighters, police officers, nurses, doctors, chaplains, police chaplains, to go to these areas and be first responders and bring in supplies and know how to act in critical incident. And they've taken critical incident stress management. But always with the... uh, effect of preaching the gospel. They want to get the gospel in, so they asked me to speak to them. And I noticed a difference in the crowd. What I mean by that is when I go in October and I do my teaching session, these are people who have heard our radio broadcast and they want to take a few days and relax and enjoy the beautiful scenery of North Carolina when the leaves change and the beautiful facility at the cove and It's a great place to get away and ooh and awe at God's creation, kick back. But usually the people that come in October are more or less, and I want to be fair here, but more or less sermon connoisseurs. You know, they've heard Bible studies before. They've heard Christian radio. They've been around the block. And it's more to receive than anything else. Nothing wrong with that. We all need to be fed. But this group was different in that The reason they came is to be equipped because they want to go out and give in a first response scenario and to know how to share their faith, know how to be better equipped with the compassion of the Lord. So the crowd was very different. It was sort of like, tell me what I need to know. It's not about the building here. It's not about the beautiful grounds at the cove. It's about I want to be equipped because I want to go out and be a better first responder. Well, I'm leading up to something. What we're dealing with in the book of Nehemiah 
is rebuilding more than a, a city called Jerusalem, but rebuilding people, the people of God. If you remember back, chapters 1 through 6 of the book of Nehemiah deal with rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. That's the focus. Nehemiah comes from Persia, sets up camp, rallies people around him, delegates. They go to work. They go on the wall with a sword in one hand, a trowel in the other hand. They build the city. They go to work. Chapter 7 is more or less a transitional chapter. Remember, a list of names were given, people that came back from the captivity and camped in Jerusalem. A census was taken. And then chapter 8 through 13, through the end of the book, deal with not the rebuilding of the city as much as the rebuilding of people's lives. And they had heard the word of God. They are responding to the word of God, you remember. That great revival that broke out at the water gate of Jerusalem. And the rest of the book deals with building people or rebuilding their torn lives. It's always easier to build a building, literally, than it is to build people's lives. And unfortunately, this is where Christian organizations and some churches go a little awry and and get off the track, I feel, is that the focus becomes the building rather than the people in the building. I know so many churches that look to a building project as the milestone of the ministry. And what happens is the building doesn't become a milestone, it becomes a millstone. As soon as they grab a hold of it, they sink because it's all about property, not people. God's focus is always on people. You might remember the story. It was in Jeremiah chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet and said, Go stand in the entrance of the gate of the Lord's temple. And as the people were coming in, he was to say, Trust not in lying vanities, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. This was a group of people later on, in, excuse me, way before the captivity, who looked toward the building, the temple, the place they went and went, wow, check it out. Look what we have built. This is God's house. This is where we get to go to church and worship. To them, it was all about the outward, not about the inward. It was the building. It was the property, not the people. God's emphasis is the people. And so chapters 11 and 12 are important chapters because they deal with the rebuilding of the lives of the people. Now, I'm telling you that because if you were to just jump in and read either chapter 11, which we read last time we were together, or chapter 12, it's about as exciting, you might think, as reading a phone book. I don't know if you've ever done that late at night. You can't sleep, get a phone book, you just start reading names. I doubt you do that. You may want to try it if you have insomnia. And so you start reading this, and it's a list of names that are given. Levites and heads of houses and priests that are named here uh, because it's sort of like the who's who phone book of the Jerusalem clergy members, those that are heading up the work that the Lord is using. Now, what these chapters are about is the occupation of Jerusalem. The occupation of Jerusalem. i got to tell you something. Going back to Jerusalem to rebuild that temple and live in the city was not an easy thing. 
The cost of living was high. Most people were living outside of the city in little villages scattered around Judea where there was open land, property was cheaper, taxes weren't so high. They could grow their own crops, have their own cattle. It's sort of a similar dynamic to what we have here in Southern California where people find housing is a lot cheaper inland rather than it is here at the coast. So you have people commuting for a long period of time, living inland, commuting down to the coast where they work and then going back. It's just a lot easier to manage life that way. So it was in Jerusalem, and Nehemiah knew this wasn't good. He knows that he needs to get people who are living in these villages. Priests are there, leaders are in Jerusalem, but how do we get the people to build it up? And there's a verse in chapter 7, verse 4, that describes the predicament Nehemiah is in. It says, the city of Jerusalem was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not yet rebuilt. So, this is what they do. They cast lots. And one out of every ten people through this casting of lots is taken from their home, their village outside of Jerusalem, somewhere in the hills of Judea, And they're brought to live in the city of Jerusalem to occupy the town. Some volunteered, others did not. They cast lots. You might read that and go, cast lots? What is that exactly? Well, it's sort of like sanctified dice throwing that God happened to be in control of. Yeah, they would uh, like draw straws or throw the dice, cast the lot. And depending on how it would land, they would say, well, it's God's will that you move to Jerusalem. You could say, oh, come on, how could that be God's will? Well, i got to tell you, there's a proverb, Proverbs 16. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So the Lord was in control of that process, and a group of people moved into Jerusalem. Before we just jump in, I want you to sympathize with that. Do you know what it's like to pull up stakes and relocate? Now, I do because I did that recently. And I hear Christians, and I said it, then God held me to it. Oh, I'd go anywhere the Lord wants me to go. You've probably said that. I'd move to Timbuktu if I knew that's what God wanted me to do. But when you move to Timbuktu, and you actually pull up your roots, and you sell the house, and you say goodbye to all your friends, and you move to Jerusalem and leave the village behind, and you have to find places to shop in Jerusalem, schools in Jerusalem. It's not an easy process. And that's what these people were up against. The leaders are there, the priests are there, and some of them are named in this chapter. Now, verse 1. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluch, Hattush, Shechaniah, Rehum, and Merimoth. A bunch of names. Reads like a phone book. In the priesthood, there were 24 courses of priests. Let me explain. Let's say you were in the priesthood. That was your job. You would serve for a two-week period of time every year. So you'd only serve a month every two years, 24 
courses where you'd have a week and then another week and you would do your official duties in the temple for that period of time. And then it rotated. 24 courses of priests. David had that set up. It was, had been established. Here in this chapter, the priests and the Levites are named, but only 22 courses are mentioned. Two are not. Probably because they're not present. There's no real accounting of that family. We don't know where they are. We don't know if they came back from captivity. They're not in the registry. So only 22 are named. And uh, several names are given in this chapter. We're not going to read them all. But did you notice Zerubbabel is mentioned in verse 1? Now there's a name for you. If you're looking for a name for your son that's going to be born next year, how about Zerubbabel? I doubt you'll do that, but there's a Bible name. Everybody's looking for one. Zerubbabel is mentioned, though he's not really in the story contemporarily. You see, Zerubbabel showed up about a hundred years before this. Under Ezra, when they came back the first time, and Ezra brought the first group of captives back from Babylon to rebuild the temple and the foundations, Zerubbabel, according to one of the minor prophets, was the governor. And he's mentioned, you might think, okay, why is he mentioned a dude that's been dead a hundred years? Here's Nehemiah. He's rebuilding the city. Uh, They're going to dedicate it in this chapter. Why did they go all the way back to Zerubbabel? Well, understand something, that to the Jews, genealogies and forefathers were very important. They always wanted to take the young, new generation and tie in the past. Here's your legacy. Here's your history. Because they always stood on the shoulders of those who went before them. They always stood on the shoulders of leaders who had gone before them. So tying in the past with the present to then share with the future, uh, the names are given. Now, something about Zerubbabel. I mentioned he's called the governor. Nehemiah is the governor now. Zerubbabel came to a point with his gang in rebuilding the temple about a hundred years earlier, a place of discouragement. Things weren't going well. The work wasn't easy. He thought it would be much easier coming back to rebuild the temple than it was. He was ready to give up. So one of the most famous verses of Scripture promised that you know was given to Zerubbabel. In the book of Zechariah, he's given a vision. And uh, here's the vision. Zechariah sees this golden lampstand, this seven-branched menorah, the candlestick that was in the holy place in Jerusalem. He sees that in a vision. But this is the most unusual menorah. He had never seen one like it. Because in his vision, he not only saw the seven-branched golden candlestick, but above it, a gold bowl filled with oil and seven pipes running from the bowl into each of the branches of the seven golden lampstand menorah. Then attached to that were two pipes that ran to two olive trees in this vision. So it was an automated menorah. That's what it was. You see, the priest had to go in every day and keep that candlestick burning brightly, representing the presence of God among his people. But here he sees this vision of, wow, that's so easy. It's just an automated thing. The olive comes from the trees. It's fed into the bowl. The bowl disseminates it equally into seven uh, places for that menorah, and it burns. 
He's wondering what it means. And the Lord said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, says the Lord. That great mountain that you see shall become a plain, O Zerubbabel. So the big obstacle of rebuilding the temple, God's going to take it away. And it's not by Zerubbabel's might or his human power or his ingenuity. God is going to do a work and it's going to be very obvious that God does the work in finishing that temple. That's the Zerubbabel. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, scripture. Now, let's go on. We're not going to read, as I said, all of these uh, uh, names. Uh, It says at the end of verse 7, these were the heads of the priests and their brethren in the days of Jeshua. Moreover, the Levites were Jeshua, Benui, Cadmiel, and a whole bunch of other names that I'm not going to read because you just want me to read them to see if I pronounce them correctly. But then how would you know if I did or not? (laughs) Who led the thanksgiving psalms, he and his brethren. Here's the setup. Several groups are now coming into place before the dedication, the administration. Um, Zerubbabel, the first governor, now Nehemiah, the governor presently. The pastoral team is together. Jeshua, the high priest, is mentioned. Uh, The worship community, the worship team, the ancient Holland Davis of that time, and the worship team, the Levites, and the Levitical choirs, and you'll read about two of them tonight, are put in place. And notice it says Thanksgiving Psalms. They just built walls of a city. They just defended it, and they were successful. Up to this point, in looking up at the walls of Jerusalem, they had seen workers on the wall. They had seen watchers on the wall. Here, they'll see worshipers on the wall. And part of the worship is noted is thanksgiving psalms. We won't find them, but there's your homework. Go through the book of Psalms and find all of the thanksgiving psalms. There's a lot of them. And there's a principle. In the midst of our planning... And in the midst of our working and the midst of our sweating, take time to think about God's goodness and thank him for it. It would be very easy for them to go, okay, we're in Jerusalem, but Lord, the cost of living is so high. Lord, we're in Jerusalem, but this has been hard to build this wall and those enemies have hounded us. Okay, we're here, but on and on. But rather than that, they're focusing on thanking God For all of the blessings. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Remember that next time you're prone to say, I want to know the will of God for my life. There's part of it. It's right in the Bible. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That you give thanks. I wonder what the percentage is of the body of Christ that regularly thanks God on a daily basis for his blessings, for his mercies, for his grace. I bet, my guess, it's about the same percentage as it was in the New Testament. There were 10 lepers that came to Jesus. Jesus healed all 10 of them. Only 10% returned thanks, one. He came back and bowed down and thanked the Lord, and Jesus asked a very probing question. 
Where are the nine? You mean out of ten people that have been healed miraculously, only one is going to thank me for it? Ten percent. Ninety percent just thought, probably God owes it to me. Next. So they have these beautiful psalms of thanksgiving. Look at down to verse 10. I'm just going to make mention of the fact that six generations of high priests are mentioned from Jeshua. Again, we're dealing with somebody a hundred years before. He came with Zerubbabel and Ezra. Jeshua begot Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim begot Eliashib. Eliashib begot Jehoiada. Jehoiada begot Jonathan. Jonathan begot Jadua. Jadua was the current high priest during that time. I'm going to skip some of the names down and take you to verse 22. During the reign of Darius the Persian, a record was also kept of the Levites and priests who had been heads of their father's houses in the days of Eliashib, Joiada, Johanan, and Jadua. The sons of Levi, the heads of the father's houses, until the days of Johanan or Johanan, as it is pronounced in Hebrew, the son of Eliashib, were written in the book of the Chronicles. And the heads of the Levites were all of these names. So we're going to find two sets of worshipers that marched down to the temple area to sacrifice. Again, they had seen workers on the walls, watchers on the walls. Now they're seeing worshipers on the wall. Tonight, The focus of this study is the worship generation of Jerusalem. Uh, One person said a very interesting observation about us. He said, we have become a generation of people who worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. Nehemiah wanted to make sure that wouldn't happen then. They, They just came back from captivity. They knew what it was like to be in a foreign land and sing God's praises along the Kibar River and the Euphrates and the Tigris. They're back in the land. They want to make sure that worship is a priority. And so the heads of the Levites were the names that I didn't read with their brothers. I'm in verse 24. Across from them to praise and give thanks. Group alternating with group according to the command of David, the man of God. Can you sort of picture it, what it would sound like? Antiphonal praise. One group would say one thing. One group would respond in another way. A whole list of names are also given in verse 25. And so I'll pick it up right in the middle of that verse. And Akub. I'll read it all. I should, shouldn't I, for context? Mataniah. Bakbukiah. Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmon, and Akub were gatekeepers keeping watch at the storerooms of the gates. I'm glad you're not the Holy Spirit, and I'm glad I'm not the Holy Spirit, because if I were the Holy Spirit, I think I'd leave the gatekeepers out. It's a boring job. Nobody sees the gatekeepers. Who cares about the gatekeepers? God does. It's probably what you and I would consider an uneventful occupation. Opening and closing the gates, manning the traffic flow of the temple. They were the ancient ushers of the temple. Go with me to Psalm 84 for just a moment. 
Psalm 84. Before we read it, let me tell you something about a gatekeeper. Gatekeepers are the first to be in the worship service. They've got to come early. And they're the last to leave. Which means if you're a gatekeeper, you get to linger in the presence of God in the place of gathering longer than anybody else. So they didn't see it as a demotion, but a promotion. And look what Psalm 84 says. It begins by saying, To the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of the sons of Korah. We know from other scripture that the sons of Korah, among other things, were gatekeepers in the house of the Lord. And so they begin by saying, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for your courts. The courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh, cry out for the living God. Verse 9. O God, behold our shield and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in tents of wickedness. Hmm. I see a principle there. In a relationship, tasks take on a different meaning. Here's the principle again. In a relationship, tasks take on a different meaning. What we would consider menial and low and base and boring, when you're in a relationship of love, it's wonderful. Take a guy who's a bachelor. Let's say this bachelor happens to be a slob. He's unkept. His apartment is messy. He doesn't like to do dishes. He waits till things grow on them and grow legs and start walking away before he washes the dishes. I'm speaking from experience here. He didn't like to clean up the house, but he met a girl. And she's coming over for dinner. He's scared to death. It's the first time he's cooked for a girl. I'll guarantee you if there's any iota of love in that young man or interest, he's going to wash the dishes, clean the place, either throw the socks away or wash them. And clean up after himself because in a relationship, tasks take on a whole different meaning. So I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. You see, folks, the most menial job on God's staff is better than the place of highest promotion in the world. What God offers you Put it this way. The worst that God would ever offer you is better than the best that the world would ever offer you. Doorkeeper, I'll take the job. I get to come in early. I get to leave late. I get to linger in the presence of the Lord. I'd rather be one. What is it that that makes uh, successful businessmen and successful businesswomen with lots of disposable income say, I want to be an usher in church. I want to teach a Bible study on my night off. Or I want to go and be a missionary somewhere and spend my time serving people in other countries to make sure they know the gospel. It's because in a relationship of love, tasks take on a whole new meaning. 
A doctor was in Korea, a missionary doctor. Came out of a surgical operation, took him hours. He came out fatigued, beads of sweat rolling down his forehead, took off his cap, his gown. He leaned against the table because he was so fatigued his arms were about to give way. And an observer said, Hey, doc, how much money would you get for that operation you just performed on that woman in the United States? He said, I'd probably get about thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 for what I just performed. And he said, How much is that woman going to give you? What are you getting from that woman that you just operated on? He said, Nothing more than her thanks and my master's approval. And that is the payoff, isn't it? Because in a relationship, tasks take on a different meaning. So here's a doorkeeper mentioned in the house of God. Who cares about a doorkeeper? God and the doorkeeper. And Nehemiah, because he wanted to make sure you knew about it years later. So they were keeping, verse 25... Watch at the storerooms of the gates. These lived in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, in the days of Nehemiah, the governor of, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe. Now, the rest of the chapter, we're going to just give you highlights, is what everybody in Jerusalem had been waiting for. Dedication day. It's the day to bring out the band let the worship go, play the music, sing the songs, and dedicate the temple. The emphasis in the rest of the chapter is joyful praise. Here's an example. The word sing appears eight times in the following verses. The words thanks or thanksgiving six times. The word rejoice appears seven times. And music or musical instruments appear three times. That's the tone before we jump into these verses. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and singing with cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps. When you deal with Scripture and you deal with praise in the Bible, you so often find Praise, worship linked together with the use of musical instruments, especially in the Old Testament. In the book of Psalms, it's, it's everywhere. In fact, did you know the word psalm, the idea of a Hebrew psalm, is simply words set to music. So that's why you read certain psalms that have musical notations before them to the accompanying of certain instrumentations. Martin Luther said this, Next to theology... I give to music the highest place and honor. Music is the art of the prophets, the only art that can claim the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents God has given to us. This is what the book of Colossians says. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Music has always played an important role in any culture. Any culture has folk songs, national anthems. You want to sell a product, you set a theme to music, a catchy tune, 
And you play it over and over and over again. So when you're driving down the street and you think, I need a car. What car should I buy? You asked for it. You got it. Toyota. (laughs) And every advertiser will use music to get themes across. Because music advertisers, experts, people who watch human behavior know music moves us. It moves us. We love it. That's why uh, of all of the leisure activities, one teen survey reported teenagers listen most to music than any other form of leisure activity. Music. Here's a story for you. True story. Missionary was in Nigeria building a mission station. Carpenters were called. Builders were called. They were ready to build the mission station. They all sat around. The workers weren't doing the work. The carpenters weren't cutting the wood. Nobody was laying the foundation. The missionary who had come from America said to the foreman, why aren't they building? They're all here. The materials are here. And the man, the local said, I don't know, but for some reason, the musician has been delayed. The missionary said, what? What do you mean the musician? He said, oh yeah, these people work to the beating of the drum and the drone of their music. That's how they work. So music has always played an important part in culture. It's always played an important and vital role in worship music. And the kind of music, if you look at the instrumentations here, it was pretty loud and lively. Cymbals, it says in Psalm 50, loud cymbals, light cymbal, crashing cymbals. Uh, They use the harp. That's uh, sort of like the ancient trapezoidal electric guitar without the amp. It was always played with a pick. And the sons of the singers gathered together, verse 28, from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages of the Netophathites, from the house of Gilgal, from the fields of Geba, and Osmaveth, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Talk about creative synergy in town. That'd be a fun village to visit and hang out in. Then the priests and the Levites purified themselves and purified the people, the gates and the wall. They purified themselves, by the way, if you're interested, by putting the ashes of a red heifer into water called a mikvah, and they would baptize or immerse themselves under the water, walk out the other side, saying prayers. And it was the ceremonial cleansing before this act of worship, this great act of worship in Jerusalem. Verse 31, So I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall, and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs, one of which went to the right hand on the wall toward the refuse gate, and after them several people are mentioned. And here's the setup. A group of people were on the wall, led by Ezra. Another group on the wall, led by Nehemiah. They marched these worshipers on the wall from the valley gate. You remember that in previous studies. Around the walls descending and entering into the temple in Jerusalem where they would offer sacrifices and dedicate the city. So it was quite a spectacular show. In the 36th verse, and his brethren Shemaiah, Azarel, Maliah, Gilalai, Mai, Mai, however you pronounce that, <laughs> Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before them. 
Wouldn't you love to be a musician and have an instrument of David? You know, there's like handmade Martin guitars or Collings guitars, but imagine having one that David made or that David commissioned to be made for the Levitical choir. What a prize. And if you know anything about David, you know he placed a lot of emphasis on the Levitical choir and the instrumentation and making sure that the worship was first class. Now, again, whenever I read the Old Testament and I listen to the kind of anthems and the kind of singing and kind of instrumentation, I know that it was filled with joy. I know that it was very vibrant and it was probably very loud. There has always been controversy among groups of Christians throughout history as to what kind of music God likes. And some are convinced God only likes 4-4 beat, not 3-4 beat. That's a little too jazzy for the kingdom. 4-4 beat has to be slow. We know that he likes pipe organs, maybe some violins, but certainly God can't like drums or electric guitar. I'd like to see them listen to these Levitical choirs. And I go back in history from my time, and I look back to the time in 1524, When Martin Luther decided that he was going to take the songs that were sung in the bars around town and bring the melodies into the church and just set Christian lyrics to them. It was very controversial when he did this. That's a song they sing out in the world. And he's bringing it in the church, but putting Christian lyrics to it. This is what Martin Luther said. Listen carefully. How has it happened? He said. That in the secular field, there are so many fine poems and so many beautiful songs, while in the religious field, we have such rotten, lifeless stuff. He went on to say, we must read, sing, preach, write, and compose verse. And whatever was helpful and beneficial, I would let all the bells peal and all the organs thunder and everything sound that could sound. So little Marty, Martin Luther, went into the bar and took songs and brought them into the church and put Christian lyrics to them, and one of them happens to be away in a manger. Oh, that's a holy hymn. It is now. Back then it wasn't. Another one, a mighty fortress is our God, had a secular tone to it, but redeemed lyrics. As time went on, a young boy in the year 1690 came to his father after church and said, Dad, I think the songs in church are pretty boring, don't you? And his dad rebuked him. How dare you? That's holy music. That's sacred stuff. And if you think you can do any better, son, write your own song. So Isaac Watts did. And he wrote songs that were a little bit edgy for that time, but now are considered the great holy hymns of the church, like Joy to the World, the Lord is Come, or When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And you could cite example after example. William Booth with the Salvation Army said, let's forget the church music. Let's go out on the streets with street organs and drums and cymbals and reach the people that aren't going to darken the door of a church. Let's get the gospel out on the streets. Let's make something fresh and edgy and innovative. And they did. And there is a scripture mentioned a few times that says, sing a new song unto the Lord. I've discovered something about us. We don't like it. Oh, we like to underline the verse. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll remember that. But we just don't like the idea of a new song. I've never heard that song before. 
Why are you singing that song tonight? Well, we want you to learn. I don't want to learn a new song. Give me the old songs. It happens in every church, folks, in every generation. It's been going on a long time. Let me give you some godly counsel. Get over it. I believe in the old songs. And by the way, the old Jesus movement songs are now probably could be considered hymns. It's been that long ago. All the bell-bottom and blue jean songs are now, they could be in a hymnal. There's nothing wrong with those songs, and there's nothing wrong. In fact, I encourage the worship band every week to include at least one old hymn because there's a depth of theology and a richness of worship that's hard to come by these days. But let's not be afraid to learn new songs because if you only sing old songs, you're making a statement. God worked a long time ago. He just stopped 400 years ago. He's not doing anything new. He's not coming up with new inspiration. So open up to sing new songs and learn new expressions unto the Lord. Well, let's finish this out and we'll do that in worship and praise. So they made this beautiful procession of worship. Also, verse 43, that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. Have you ever gone by a stadium like Angel Stadium? You're not in it, but you're close enough that when they hit a home run, you hear them. And you think, oh, I wish I'd have been in there tonight. I'd love to have seen, at least if, if angels are up to bat. And we hit the home run. Oh, I love that sound. The people around Judea took notice of their joyful worship. They paused. They stopped. J. Vernon McGee, in his great commentary, says something like, There's a great number of people. That's how he used to talk. There's a great number of people, he said, who pass by the church Because it's dry and boring, they think. And he said nine times out of ten, they're correct. There's beautiful joy that others around observe and take note of. And let's finish it up. Verse 44. At the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields Of the cities, the portions specified by the law for the priests, the Levites, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God, the charge of the purification according to the commandment of David and Solomon, his son. For in the days of David and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, all of Israel gave the portions for the singers and the gatekeepers a portion for each day. They also consecrated holy things for the Levites, and the Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. So I think that we Christians should be first responders to the character and nature of God. Just as there was a group of first responders ready for a crisis, I'll go there at the drop of a hat. To be able to say, you know, I I notice God in my day. 
I notice God not only in His creation, but His activity in my life. And I want to frequently, joyfully praise Him. I want to make that a part of my life. There are several principles here. The first and foremost is there should be a palpable joy whenever God's people gather together. You're going to heaven. Oh, but I'm going through a trial. I know what those are like. But you're going to heaven. Samuel Rutherford said, Why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord, which makes deep furrows in my soul? He is no idle husbandman. He purposes a crop. Thank him tonight before you leave for the trials as well as the blessings. Oh, you have full coverage. You have many blessings. It's easy to thank God and praise God for that. You're going through a tough time. There's the absence of those things. Thank him for that tonight. He's using that as a tool to hone you so that you'll come forth as gold. He's no idle husbandman. He purposes a crop. I'd like you to stand as the worship band comes and turn with me to Psalm 122. There's only nine verses in it. And it's short enough to do exactly what these Levitical choirs did that day. And so you need your Bibles. I hope you brought them. If you didn't, we're going to beat you up after the service. So if you didn't, you borrow your friend's Bible. There's one there in the pew. I'm going to read the first verse. I'm going to ask you to read the second and even-numbered verses. I'll read the first and odd-numbered verses. And we'll be saying them back and forth to each other. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Heavenly Father, this is the very substance of what these people on that day in Nehemiah 12 were saying to each other as they were in that city of Jerusalem and they were encouraging one another. After building up the walls, they were building up each other. Their focus was on the Levites, the priests, the worship leaders, the very substance, the body, what we would call the body of Christ. Thank you for a time, a respite in the middle of the week to consider your word and to worship the way we do. Thank you for our teams of worship. Thank you for the old songs. Thank you for the new songs. But thank you for the joy that happens when your people gather. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.